0: this morning the sermon passage is from Exodus chapter 4 we are continuing on in our sermon series in Exodus, which we've been in since the beginning of the year. And most every week, if you're here, you know that before I read our sermon passage, I say, this is God's word, go beautiful and true. And I say that because it is true. It's the right thing to say. God's Word is good, beautiful, and true. And it's easy to say that when it's a passage like John 3.16 you know, or Psalm 23. These famous passages that speak of God's love and care and provision. But this passage this morning that we're going to read, it's one of the weirdest passages in the entire Bible. I have to be upfront about that. At first, when you read through, it's hard to see what's going on. It's disorienting. It's, it's uh, maybe even discomforting. But I'm still going to say it before we read the passage because it's still true. And our impulse when we face passages of Scripture that are hard, that we don't understand on the first read, it's not to turn away, but it's to wrestle with it. To wrestle with it. And that's what we'll do this morning. So before I read it, I do want to give us a little bit of context so we're not just plopping in to the passage. Here's the context. Here's what's happened. God has told Moses, 80-year-old Moses, that He is going to send him ...as the human leader to free the Israelites from bondage. The Israelites have been in slavery in Egypt for generations. God has said, Moses, you're the human leader that I'm going to send... ...and you're going to march in... ...and you're going to lead my people out of bondage. That was Exodus 3 and 4. But you'll see, if you read again, that the the interaction did not end on a high note. It doesn't end with Moses saying, this is a great idea. I'm going to march into Egypt. I'm going to do exactly what you said, God. In fact... It ends, the last thing it says is that God's anger fumed (laughs) against Moses because Moses' heart was hardened. It doesn't specifically specifically say hardened. But Moses was not moved by God's call to him. He was not moved by the Israelites' plight in in slavery. He was closed off to that. It still ends with with God saying, Okay, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send your brother Aaron to help you. But the way that interaction ends is Moses kind of storms off, sullen. He's not happy. He seems to stomp off without a word. And so that brings us up to our passage here, verse 18, chapter 4, book of Exodus, verses 18 through 31. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel was my firstborn son, and I told you, Let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, this Moses' wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, "Bridegroom, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had said to him, and also about the signs. He had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, even when it's challenging, or especially when it's challenging. for us in these moments that we wrestle truly with who you are and what you're up to, and maybe even gain a greater clarity on the depth of your action, indeed on the the depth of your love for us that pursues us. I pray that you would give us insight by your Spirit this morning, move upon us, Lord, that we would know you and let's know ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Decades after this passage this morning, after Moses had seen God come through on all his promises, To deliver his people moses gave his people the israelites some parting words this is elderly moses close to 120 years old and that's what the book of deuteronomy is by the way it's moses final words he's about to die and he's got some final thoughts instructions for his people and one of the things that moses mentions in chapter 17 the book of deuteronomy is the issue of a king at the time the israelites did not have a king he knows that one day after they've come into the promised land and they've been established more or less as a nation, that the people are going to establish a king to rule over them like the other nations in the world. And so God inspires Moses to give a job description, it's in Deuteronomy 17, of what the king of God's people should be. Now, I won't read the whole passage this morning, but I'm going to summarize. It contained things like this as a job description. One, don't, don't appoint a king who chases after wealth or sex. Don't appoint a king that plays at politics like the other kings in the world and amasses great numbers of horses for himself and enters into political alliances by, by intermarriage and things. It says, find a king who listens to God and find a king who identifies with the people. Can't be a stranger, lifted up above. God's not interested in establishing a king in a line over his people that live by different rules. Who doesn't see himself above everybody else. Find a king who won't use religion or the name of God like a tool. But find a king who will listen to God and have his heart moved by the needs of his people. Now, it's an utterly revolutionary idea, especially in the context of the ancient world. God is saying, when you go to find a king, don't look for the strong man. Don't look for the handsome man. Don't look for the cunning man. The idea is this God is establishing a fundamentally different kind of kingdom, and that will require a fundamentally different kind of king. It does not play according to the rules that dominate the kingdoms and the empires of this world. Now, I mention all of that. I mention Deuteronomy 17 and that job description for the king of God's people, because I think as Moses was delivering that to the people and even writing it down, he had the experience of this passage bounce that we just read, bouncing around in his head. In this strange passage that we've just read, I think we see Moses taking the beginning steps that would lead him to become someone who would rule over the Israelites, a lot like Pharaoh. I'm going to explain what I mean as we go, but what I think we see is Moses beginning to take steps that will just turn him into another tyrant, turn him into another uh, enslaving ruler. And in this passage, God intervenes in a dramatic way. Why does God intervene? Because God is not interested in just propping up another Pharaoh. God is at work to redeem his people, not to build a kingdom where his people will be used yet again. The free God is creating a free people, and he will not take lightly men who will try to enslave his people. Now, it sounds like I'm making some big claims if we just read that strange passage and I'm making some accusations against Moses... So you may be wondering exactly what I mean. How is Moses like a pharaoh in training here, a leader who uses people and uses his power and status only to benefit himself? Well, I'm going to break this passage up into a couple of different sections so we can walk to it. And the first one is this, the hardening heart of Moses. The hardening heart of Moses. It starts in verse 18. Our passage opens right after Moses has just had one of the most remarkable experiences ever in human history. God has told him he's going to help Lead the Israelites, his people, out of bondage. And I think we'd expect, I think, to find a Moses that is energized and inspired. A Moses that's ready to, to, to go back home and storm hell with a super soaker. A Moses that's going to head back home and pack up and head to Egypt right away and demand freedom for the. Uh, Israelites. But that's not what we find. In verse 18, he seems to be trying to manipulate his father-in-law. The first thing he has is this interaction with Jethro, his father-in-law. And for some reason, he's not up front with him. About, he's not in front about, up front about his intentions or about what's happened. Notice what he says to Jethro. He doesn't come back and report this amazing experience. He says, I want to return to Egypt to see if any of my people are still alive. Which is something that Moses knows is true. He knows they're still alive. God just told him. Now, we aren't told why Moses does this, but it's clear he's trying to control the situation himself. He's working angles. He's giving half-truths, using words as a tool to manipulate, just like Pharaoh does. We also see Moses dragging his feet. God has just told him to go. But he doesn't heed the call. Look at verse 19. Moses has gotten the green light from his father in law. He said, God, you're blessed. Go, go. But he's still an idiot. Moses hasn't moved. He hasn't moved at all. He's still at home. So God speaks to him again, almost like God's tapping him on his shoulder Moses, are you going? It would be almost comical if it wasn't something so serious with such high stakes. What I think we see here is Moses has begun to harden his heart, it's very subtle. But he's begun to harden his heart against what God has said, and he's begun to harden his heart against the suffering of his people. So much so that when God speaks to him in verse 19, notice that God does not just repeat himself. He doesn't just repeat himself from earlier where he had told him, the people are crying out, and I will be with you. God has to appeal to Moses' sense of self-interest. Notice he says, go back to Egypt for all who wanted to kill you are dead. It's only that uh, appealing to self-interest when Moses finally begins to move toward the end. What finally inspired Moses to get on the road wasn't faith, it wasn't compassion, it was opportunity. There's a power vacuum that Moses thinks he can take advantage of. So Moses has hardened his heart. And we're thinking, okay, well that just means he's stubborn. We all have hardened hearts, right? But the issue here isn't just one between Moses and God. It's not that God has told Moses to do something uh, simple and Moses is going, "Uh, I'll get around to it. No, the stakes here are incredibly high. Moses' hard heart wouldn't just mean apathy toward God or others. Hardened hearts are what lead leaders to become tyrants. Hardened heart is what could turn Moses into just another Pharaoh. And God is not freeing his people from Pharaoh to have them enslaved by another person. That brings us to our next section, the hard heart of Pharaoh. We know this because God tells Moses what he's up to in verse 21. He gives instructions to Moses to go and perform the signs that he had given to him in front of Pharaoh. And he uses these words, all the wonders I have given you the power to do. I think God says it specifically that way because what Moses is walking into is a world where pharaohs, where kings, thought that they had been empowered by their gods. But almost in a sense like a blank check. Like you get superpowers to kind of use them however you want to. You get the authority, pharaoh, to say what's what and do whatever you want to God's making the point here that he wasn't just giving Moses some powers to impress everyone around him when he wanted to. Moses was being gifted, yes, but it was a gift for a purpose that was not to bolster Moses' ego. A purpose that not so much pointed to Moses as pointed to God. I think that's why it calls Moses' shepherding staff, in verse 20, the staff of God. This is a simple staff. We talked about it. God didn't give him a magic wand. It wasn't like uh, going to Ollivander's to get your, your wand in uh, Harry Potter. It, it's not special. It's a shepherd's thing. But here it's called the staff of God. I think the point that it's making is God's not trying to establish a kingdom under Moses. It's not the staff of Moses for his family to reign and rule with power. It's the staff of God. God is freeing His people. Then God says this about Pharaoh. I will harden his heart So he will not let the people go. Now there's a great mystery here. As we keep going in Exodus, we're going to hear a lot about this concept of Pharaoh's hardened heart. We're going to meet a Pharaoh who was stubborn from the very beginning. In fact, we'll see that over and over again, it'll say that Moses hardened his own heart against the Israelites and against Moses' words. So God's hardening mode, uh, the heart of Pharaoh here is not him making Pharaoh do something Pharaoh didn't want to do. That's not what's going on. It's God emboldening Pharaoh in his stubbornness. It's God passing judgment on Pharaoh, the oppressive king of an oppressive, oppressive kingdom that had built his wealth on the back of slave labor and used his false gods to undergird his power. He emboldens the already hard heart of Pharaoh to demonstrate before all to see that you think this power, you think this Pharaoh is the most powerful thing in the world? No. no. God is going to intervene to save his people and to demonstrate his incredible, gracious power. God is intent to set his people free. So we have the hardening heart of Moses, the hard heart of Pharaoh. That brings us to our next section, what I'm calling fathers and sons. Put it the way God does in verse 22, in in words, Moses is to say to Pharaoh, notice what he tells him to say, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, that he may worship me, or he may serve me. The Pharaohs had treated the Israelites as little more than cattle. They had used them. They had built the wealth of an empire on their backs. They had killed them when they wanted to. And they justify it. After all, Pharaoh could say, I'm ultimate. What I say goes. I have the power of life and death. What I say goes. And I have the right to do whatever I want. And God interrupts this. Egypt could not see the value and worth of his people. But God will tell Pharaoh that those people that you think are worthless, that is my son, And this is a sign right here of how fundamentally different God's kingdom will be. Because in Egypt, Pharaoh was seen as the son of the gods. The Pharaoh was even seen as partly divine himself. But that's it. That was the only son of the gods, Pharaoh and his family. But in God's kingdom... In God's kingdom, it will be a place where all, from the least to the greatest, will be seen as having an inherent dignity and worth and value, where no one, not even a king, will have the right to mistreat or use or to lift themselves above everyone else. Think about the significance. God is saying, Pharaoh, you have treated these people as worthless. You have treated them as slaves, but this is my son. This is my son, and I do not take this lightly. God is saying to Pharaoh, you have tried to force my son to worship you is ultimate. But that false display of power is going to be exposed. So God passes his judgment on this wickedness. In verse 23, he tells him what's going to happen next. But you refuse to let my son go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now this feels harsh. It does. But it points to something, I think, deep. That the problem in Egypt wasn't just the problem of an individual pharaoh that had some bigotry. It was an entire system that had been built up over generations. An entire empire built on false gods and built on false promises. An empire built on oppression. And a ruling family. The family of Pharaoh that ruled by oppression. Now it's worth noting here, I think when we say Pharaoh's son, we tend to think of maybe like an 11, 12 year old boy. Um, Maybe we've got some movies in the back of our head. But um, is. Pharaoh's firstborn son here would have been a grown man, one whose life was already steeped in the ways of Egypt, one who himself was culpable of mistreatment of the Israelites, the next in line to the throne who was being groomed to rule just like his father. Our verse, our passage then turns to the very strangest scene, maybe in the entire Bible, in verse 24. Moses and his family are on their way to Egypt, and suddenly Moses is in danger. As it says, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. What? What? <laughs> and Moses' wife, Zipporah, she springs into action. She circumcises his son, her son, strikes Moses with the foreskin, which leads Moses to being saved from the danger. What in the world is going on here? <laughs> what is happening Didn't God just call Moses to go to Egypt, right? Why would he do something like this? The reason why is because Moses is headed to Egypt without a heart moved by God. He's going to Egypt without a heart moved by the suffering of his people. He's willing, Moses is willing to take the staff that God has said he'll do wonders through. So he's willing to walk into Egypt with the power of religion in his hand... But he's walking in without intimacy with God. And he's going to walk in as supposedly the Savior of the Israelites, even though he has explicitly rejected God and the people. Here's what I mean. It's what circumcision is talking about here. Make no mistake. His son not being circumcised is no oversight. This isn't they got lost on the calendar and uh, forgot to reschedule the appointment. Circumcision in this world was the physical marker given to Abraham generations before as the mark of God's people. The mark in their flesh of God's promise. And Moses himself would have been circumcised when he was a child. He knew the importance of it. And I need to point out too here that that Moses' son was not a child here. This is a grown man. We met his son earlier, Gershom, um, after Moses had met his wife and settled down in Midian. So his son here is not a little baby; he's not a little child. This is a grown man. This scene takes place when Moses was 80 years old, so his son would have been middle-aged as I said, the lack of circumcision here was no oversight. It was a flagrant refusal by Moses during his time of exile, his time of being in Midian. It was an explicit refusal to identify with the promise of God and with his people. And I think it's explicit because what do we see here? We don't see Zipporah, his wife, not knowing what's going on. We don't see her saying, hey, what do I need to do? In this situation, she knows exactly what's going on. She springs into action knowing exactly what to do. She knew what to do because this has been a conscious choice of rejecting God by Moses that he made not just when his son was little, but he has continually made. A refusal by Moses to identify with the promises of God and with his people. So let's not miss the dynamic here. Moses is willing to return to Egypt and lead the Israelites, but not as one of them, only to rule over them. That's what I mean when I say that Moses is taking the beginning steps to be a leader just like Pharaoh. In Egypt, Pharaoh was set apart from the people. He didn't mix with the common people. He was a god. Rules didn't apply to him. He wielded the power of religion and what he said went. And he was unmoved by the suffering that his empire had created, hard-hearted to the extreme. And all of that is what Moses is in danger of stepping into here. But what we see in this passage is God intervenes in a way that we don't expect, in a way that probably makes us uncomfortable. It does me. But I think what we see here is how seriously God is taking this rescue mission. How seriously God takes His kingdom. God is utterly opposed not just to Pharaoh. So it's not just a matter of removing one Pharaoh and replacing him with a Moses. God is utterly opposed not just to Pharaoh, but to any human leader who will use His people. Utterly opposed to any human leader who will set Himself over them as a God. God is completely uninterested. And legitimizing Moses as a ruler of his people. If he's going to rule over them in the way of Pharaoh. After all, God is seeking to free his people from Pharaoh so that they serve him. Not free them from Pharaoh so they serve Moses. And even in this, Moses doesn't seem to come to his senses. Notice in fact that he's only rescued in this dire moment because yet again in his life a woman steps in to take the initiative. We saw that earlier with his mother, with his sister, with the, uh, with the Hebrew midwives. We saw it with even Pharaoh's daughter, and here we see it with his wife. And she circumcises her son and strikes Moses with the foreskin, declaring, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, that phrase is almost impossible to interpret. I don't actually know what it means. You don't find that phrase anywhere else in the Bible. If you go and look in the literature of the the ancient world, you don't find it anywhere there either. The grammar isn't even clear if she's speaking to Moses or she's speaking to God. But either way, Sampora has intervened to do what her husband so far had refused to do. And her action is what keeps Moses' hardened heart from ending in tragedy. That brings me to my last section, the softening heart of Moses. After this encounter, Moses is a man who begins to change. We see this progressively as we keep going in the book of Exodus. His heart begins to soften to God and toward the people. Moses becomes a changed man. We know this because look in verse 28. When he meets his brother Aaron that God has sent to be his helper, notice the difference between his interaction with Aaron and the one that he had earlier with Jethro. Remember Jethro, he kind of... Did a half-truth. He kind of lied to him. was manipulating the situation. But what does it say? It says he tells Aaron everything. He tells Aaron everything. Not just what he wants him to hear so that Aaron will do what he wants. Then Aaron and Moses do what the Lord has instructed. They go to the leaders of the Israelites. And they tell them and perform the signs that God has given them. And the people believed. And the passage ends here. Not with the people. Notice the last verses. The people do not bow down to who? Moses... They bow down and worship God. They bow down and worship God, not Moses. What Aaron has said and what Moses has done has made clear to them it is not Moses who is concerned about their salvation and will be their Savior. It is God. So that's the passage. And it's a doozy. And I don't think I answered every question that comes from it, but If we come away from this passage this morning thinking, well, that was a weird one. Or even if we come away from it thinking, well, Moses was maybe a more lousy guy than I thought. Then I think we've missed the overarching point. This is what I mean. This passage, like all of Scripture, serves as a pointer to us to set our hearts on Jesus. The King of God's Kingdom. Jesus who didn't harden his heart to the call of the Father to come to us. Jesus, who didn't harden his heart and does not harden his heart now against our need. Jesus, who did not arrive into this world and play political games and try to set himself up over us, but became one of us. Jesus, who came as a servant, who came to be with us, as one of us, and was lifted up as one of us and us with him. Jesus, the king who joined us to himself so that we might be brought into His kingdom, that we might be made adopted sons and daughters of God, that we might receive His grace, and receive by grace all that is His by right. Jesus, the King of God's kingdom, a kingdom where we are not used, a kingdom where we are seen, where we are known, where we are loved by God. Jesus, who, like Zipporah here, intervened to save us from our rebellion. Who applies not only the blood of circumcision, but the blood of His cross that we might be reconciled to God. Now make no mistakes this morning. God is still utterly uninterested in setting up kingdoms for other people to rule over His people. But He is entirely interested. And set on bringing to us all the grace that He has for us through our true King, Our true kingdom. The victorious and risen Jesus. We live today in a world full of leaders who will try to prop themselves up and establish power, whose hearts are hardened and closed off to the reality of the lives of the people they want to lead. We live in a world full of people who, uh, that will use individuals, human beings, as things, as stepping stones to get where they want. And I'm not even primarily talking about politicians. I'm talking about pastors. Not a week goes by where I don't hear a story from somewhere in the United States of a pastor that's been exposed for having used his power as a pastor to abuse his people in one way or another. Who has worked angles, who has played politics to establish himself up and build his church and build his numbers up. I'm talking about TV preachers, about people who are willing to try and use God to build their own kingdom. People who will live in the lap of luxury, utterly removed from the reality of anybody else's lives, but then will beg for money at the end of the TV programs. When God is completely uninterested in propping someone else's kingdom up, He is 100% uninterested in empowering people that will use others. And that's why Jesus came. God called forth and formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary a king for His kingdom apart from the help of any man And in Jesus, completely God and completely man, we find our king who does not harden his heart to us. A king who hears us when we call. A king who acts on our behalf. A king who defeats all of his and our enemies so that he might bring to us all that God has for us. Not another Pharaoh, but a king that loves Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have been brought into your kingdom. What a delight, what a joy it is to come to you and to know that we are yours. And what you say goes, that we are who you say we are. And that in you is plentiful redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That we have a place in your household forever that no one can ever remove. I thank you, God, that we serve under this king. I thank you that you contend with us and that you even contended with Moses here to break him of this hostility toward you and toward your people so that he would not march in and just be a tyrant, just another pharaoh, but that through him you proclaimed your salvation and pointed forward to the greater Moses, our King Jesus. I pray that you would set our affections on our Lord, that you would teach us what it means to live in your kingdom as dearly delighted in daughters and sons of God, And that you would teach us not to trust in the princes of this world. Not to trust in the people who seem flashy or handsome or cunning or smart. That we would trust in you. I pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus.